I don't want to have to fit into someone else's whitewashed marketing of sustainable fashion. I want to create fashion that shows people like me and is inclusive. Hello and welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor. I really hope you enjoyed last week's Black History Month feature with Samuel Tolley, founder of Hidden Pages. If you haven't caught up yet, I really would recommend you add it to your playlist for this week. Today, Samuel's back with another feature episode, and this week he's joined by Rosette Arle, the founder of Revival, a London-based fashion label centred on sustainability and specialising in the repurposing of textile waste. So for the final time this month, but certainly not the last time on this podcast, please sit back and enjoy Samuel's takeover of 40 Minute Mentor. Today I have the honour and the privilege of being joined by Rosette Alley. Now, Rosette is the founder of Revival, which is a sustainable fashion brand that is showing the world how innovative design and environmental friendly consciousness go hand in hand. Now, a little bit of a background story here. So Rosette and I actually went to uni together and her inspirational aura has been the thing since then and still is now. Oh gosh, what an intro. (laughs) Thank you, Sam. Um, Yeah, so yeah, as Sam said, I'm Rosette, founder of Revival London, which is all about making slow fashion sexy, inspired by the 90s and 2000s and mainly working with denim as well. So specifically reworking discarded denim, which was on its way to landfill, reclaiming that and then turning it into something beautiful and contemporary. And I guess I started out fashion blogging and customising my own clothes. And then I did a, like a fashion foundation diploma, which kind of gave me my light bulb moment because we had like a reconstruction project And that basically encompassed taking a garment apart and then redesigning it. And I was like, oh my God, this is it. (laughs) So ever since that course, I kind of had that at the back of my mind. And I wanted to start a fashion brand that was not only cool and sexy and contemporary, but also had some kind of impact environmentally and socially. So that's how Revival was born. And yeah, here we are today. It's kind of evolved over the years, but yeah, that's where we're at today. Amazing, amazing. Thank you. As we said in sort of this prelude to this conversation, what you're doing is massively important. And obviously the great benefit of it is that it is catering to trying to heal the earth, right? Through human behaviour in terms of purchasing habits. I want to ask nonetheless, what was the moment for you when you realised absolutely have to start this business venture? I think it was during university in my third year. So this actually, (laughs) I was so excited about this business venture that I was actually (laughs) failing my actual degree. (laughs) So I was slipping up in terms of like my courses and like the the exams I was doing in my first semester of third year, because I was just so excited about this fashion brand. And I found the way to like combine the social impact in terms of like, paying workers fairly and like empowering them but also thinking about like okay we're gonna have environmental impact as well we're gonna reclaim stuff that's going to landfill and then like obviously it's gonna be cool it's gonna be stylish it's gonna be like you know contemporary and I was like this is it like (laughs) I think I even pitched it was either like a bit of funding or mentorship in like first year and third year as well So that was when I was really like on fire for the business. And I was like, yo, this needs to happen. I envisioned myself leaving university, having this business up and running, like, yeah, entrepreneur from the gate. And that's really not how it turned out. 
But yeah, third year of university, I was literally like, this is it. This is what I want to do. I want to do this entrepreneurship life and like run my own business, basically. Amazing. And what I love as well about the inception of, I guess, the inspiration was that it came at a time when, yes, you were thinking about what next, but also when the revelation hit you about how much of a positive impact this could have on literally the planet, on literally the world. And it's almost like the logistical and the more emotive and passionate parts of your brain had agreed on something. We're like, yeah, you know what, this is it. It's time. It's time for this. And that's absolutely beautiful to hear. So, yeah, thank you for bringing revival to to the forefront. What were some of the challenges that you faced when you came into the industry and specifically the fashion industry as well? I think the first thing is obviously like financial struggles. So in terms of like buying materials, buying a sewing machine, just, yeah, getting up and running. I think that was the first hurdle. I was like, okay, cool. I need to obviously have some money in the bank to fund this. So actually when I started out, I was putting money into my business account and it wasn't making me any money, obviously. So I was kind of just self-funding it from my day job and like full-time jobs that I was doing alongside. So that was like the first thing. But I think the way in which I tried to get around that was as a fashion blogger, I had so many clothes. I had loads of jeans. I had loads of like old t-shirts and stuff like that. So I was like, why don't I just start using stuff that I already own? And redesigning that rather than going out and buying materials and also looking in charity shops as well as an alternative, of course, secondhand that's more sustainable than buying like a roll of fabric, for example. So it was obviously financially difficult, but it also led me more down like a sustainable path as well. And I think also in terms of me not studying a fashion degree, I think it didn't set me back like massively but I think it would have definitely helped me in terms of you know my course mates being people who are now in industry and things like that that would have been a great place to network and of course you know tutors and potential mentors that you could find within university and that kind of institution would have been really really helpful along the way but yeah YouTube is an amazing resource like you can learn how to do anything on YouTube so that was my go-to that that was my university degree my fashion degree basically been doing like short courses as well really helped me to upskill. So I kind of found my way around these kind of hurdles and just tried to figure it out along the way. Amazing. And what's really inspiring to hear is, again, that self-sufficient attitude that you had to tackling what was seemingly quite a big task at first. But you were like, again, I'm so passionate about this. And that's an important thing, actually. To, when you work from a place of passion, your well never runs dry. You'll always find a way to make things work. And that sort of self-sufficiency is something that I think a lot of our listeners will, and proactiveness, something that a lot of our listeners will appreciate hearing and be reminded about because you're going to get help from here, there and everywhere, but most of your progress comes from your own volition and what you put in. Speaking of those challenges as well, so obviously here at the 40 Minute Mental podcast, we're particularly interested in that role of mentorship and whether you're a mentor or a mentee, how that has shaped your journey in some way. So did you have a mentor or do you currently have a mentor as we speak? And if so, what were some of the key things that you learned from that mentor? Yeah, so I had a mentor. I only had a mentor last year, like officially. No, not last year, the year before, 2021. So that was actually alongside when I was running a crowdfunding campaign for the brand. So raising money to set up the sustainable supply chain and run my first production run. So during that time, I basically applied for this 
this company called Fashmash, who are basically a fashion platform all about putting fashion pioneers and change makers at the forefront. I applied for this scheme that they had going on for like a six month mentorship and I actually got through. So I won the mentorship and had um, a mentor who was at the time he was at L'Oreal. He was, um, I think he was digital marketing, head of digital marketing at L'Oreal. And it tied in perfectly with my crowdfunding campaign. So yeah, he basically taught me like to, I think the main things he taught me was to be more, more like bold and clear about what revival stands for so I think I was very like watered down and not as punchy in terms of my brand kind of marketing I guess so he would tell me to like shout about you know specific things I want to share with my community so for example working with female makers and empowering them like shout about that don't just write it as like a one-liner in the brand story like really talk about that talking about you know the impact that I'm having how many genes I've rescued like shouting about all that information rather than just like glossing over it and not highlighting it in terms of like marketing copy and social media and sharing that with the community. So he was definitely encouraging me to be a lot more bold in how I present information and how I share with our community and how I market the products as well. So that was the main thing he le- he taught me. And I think obviously just him being American as well. I feel like Americans have a different energy. Like he just was so enthusiastic that like, it just rubbed off on me. And he was like, you need to be shameless. Like talk to people, reach out, put your brand out there. Like you want to make Revival famous. It's not about being shy and being like, oh no, I don't want to put myself out there. Like shout about your brand, be bold, talk about it. And like tell the whole world about this brand basically. I think that was like the first thing that he probably said to me on like our first like initial call. Those are the main things that I've learned from him. So yeah, as a mentor myself, so I actually did a short mentoring like mentoring scheme with um University of Nottingham, so our uni, with some black students, and we had like three sessions, and that was like kind of things that I was sharing with them, like be bold, like don't don't shy away, shout about your successes, like when you're networking as well, when you're speaking to people, really describe what you do and what you can bring to the table. Don't be don't be too humble to the point where you play down all your <laughs> all your accolades, basically. Love that, love that. Especially because your fashion sense is quite bold and you're not afraid to explore. You're not afraid to stand out. So your personal brand. And again, we've known each other for some time, and I, I think I'm qualified to say this. It's unique, it's innovative, it's forward-thinking, it's inspiring. It inspires others to be like, oh, yeah, actually, maybe I could juxtapose these seemingly two different items together, and actually they work. So it's so interesting to hear that your mentor was guiding you to bring that boldness that you have in your personal brand, transfer that into how you market your business. And you're so right. You know, I think some of the the wisdoms that we forget in regards to interviewing or networking, which is those are the times where you don't have to worry about being too humble or being too shy, et cetera, because people want to know what you can bring to the table. Therefore, it's almost inescapable that you're going to have to toot your own horn a bit. And we know how the, the business world is. So much money is spent on marketing. And whether it's presented as a kind of a minimalist, simplistic way or more so a bombastic way, it's all very intentional. Regardless of the volume of the marketing, it's all intended to grab your attention. And the only way to do that is to kind of speak about yourself a bit. So it's so inspiring to hear and encouraging to many of our listeners as well to know that there are times where you don't have to be as meek as whatever. You know, you to your own horn. We want to know why you're here, what you bring to the table. And excited to hear as well. In terms of 
the mentorship, mentor-mentee relationship that you have as well, how do you go about fostering a good mentor-mentee relationship? That is a great question. To be fair, I think in the UK it's a lot harder because there isn't like just mentors just available like I don't know because I was speaking to my friend who's based in America and he just said that there's a website where you can put in your postcode and then just find a mentor like for free like there's nothing they just want to help people and businesses like succeed and I think he was shocked to hear that in the UK like we don't have anything like that or not that I know of it's either like you apply as part of a competition or like yeah you have to put yourself forward and then you find out if you get a mentorship So I think it's a lot harder to acquire a mentor in the UK in terms of like organisations facilitating that relationship. But it can also be intimidating in terms of if you're trying to network up, obviously, in certain events and obviously trying to meet someone who has more experience in a field or, you know, is more established to get them as a mentor. It can be very intimidating and daunting to approach that. But um I'd say, obviously, look out for organisations who are facilitating mentorship relationships and obviously look at how you can build your confidence in terms of speaking to people who are more established than you and getting that like familiarity with them and building a more two-way relationship with them to begin with rather than just approaching them and saying, be my mentor, like, who are you? Like, you need to also pour into them and, you know, show them that you can add some value to their lives as well, so... I think it shouldn't be so transactional, like in the in the first initial, like, you know, meeting phase. But as you establish that better relationship with them and you see that they they like your vibe, you like their vibe and you can pour into each other, then you can probably propose that mentorship and um, relationship. Yeah, so, so key. Something that I'm learning more and more, I guess the importance of understanding more is that pouring into the other cup as well. I think for a time, maybe just from personal experience I had a naive view of what mentorship meant and that was I received and someone gave but as you get older and you work more and you get involved in different projects etc you are also gathering some experience you're also gathering increasing value so there's no harm in being able to share that with someone who to some extent may be more experienced or you may feel is in a higher position in terms of your goal but one never stops learning so why should one think that their mentor, you know, isn't of the same mindset as well. And if you can be a source of learning for your mentor, then um, that makes the relationship even more enjoyable, I think, for both parties as well. You mentioned as well your time as a mentor for Black students at the University of Nottingham. And one thing that I've been thinking about is, do you reckon there are some mental barriers that Black people in particular may face when trying to find a mentor? Who chow? Black... Students, Black people, Black creators. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> the barriers are barriering. We've got all day. <laughs> no, honestly, we know that obviously there's, there's systemic barriers all over the gaff. Like, it's obviously a challenge for us to find our footing in industry and, you know, have our voices heard and be highlighted in, in certain things. So it's definitely a challenge and I, I don't know what specific mental barriers. Maybe it's a sense of not seeing people who look like you in their spaces to begin with. So feeling like you're out of place or feeling like you can't relate to people in that area that you want to develop or grow in or build relationships in and feeling like, oh, this is not really for me. I'm not welcome here. 
I'm not represented here. And I think that can put a lot of black people off in terms of like the mental barriers. I definitely feel that in terms of the fashion industry in certain spaces, you don't feel like, oh, this is not for me. I think that's the main thing. I don't know. I don't know what else. Because that's a very heavy topic. That one, we can really dissect it. But I think the first thing that comes to mind is just not feeling represented or feeling welcome in a space. And therefore, you not feeling like you can put yourself in that space. Yeah, I completely agree. Representation matters. And the older I get, the more I realise how important that is. I think, ideally, we'd all like to... Well, I say it all. Maybe a bit too presumptuously. I think a lot of our network... And I think most people are decent enough to say it would be good for us to kind of move beyond race and the systemic prejudices, etc. Until then, representation matters. And I think representation, increasing representation, increasing diversity is one way to get to that post-race utopia where essentially all we're saying is, look, everyone, regardless of you know what you look like, race, colour or creed, you will get equal chances. That's essentially the end goal that I think a lot of social initiatives, conversations happening online, campaigns, etc. that's the goal that everyone's trying to get to. And I think you're so right about seeing a reflection, you know, in the boardroom, because then you don't feel so much like the other or the exception, you know, the token this or the token that, you know, dare I say it. I think that's even why I wanted to start my own company, because it's like, I want to create my own space. I don't want to have to fit into someone else's whitewashed marketing of sustainable fashion. I want to create fashion that shows people like me and is inclusive. So yeah, that's probably one of the the main drivers as well. Yeah, absolutely. And to that point of diversity as well, what, if any, progress have you seen in terms of diversity in the fashion industry? I think there are a lot more black and brown content creators in the sustainable fashion industry. And obviously being... um, like working with brands, being put in like ads and marketing a lot more and being put at the forefront. I think during the Black Lives Matter uprising and the George Floyd incident, I think there was a lot of brands that were creating initiatives and organisations creating initiatives to amplify Black creators and their voices. There was one in particular, I think it was called Brand Share the Mic, and a lot of organisations actually like gave their Instagram page or their, their social media feed or whatever and dedicated that to black creators. And obviously that's only a small part of the change. But I think even for myself, that actually helped me a lot to grow as a creator and put my platform out there as well. So, yeah, I think that definitely helped in terms of boosting fashion brands and fashion creators. But I think... In the marketing side of things, I think there's still a lot of work to be done. There's obviously key brands that are pushing inclusivity and diversity. We know, obviously, Savage X Fenty, like, they're, like, the pioneers in that. Like, you know that every year you're going to get an inclusive, diverse cast. And obviously in their models and everything, that's fully, like, embedded in everything that they do. So there are certain brands that are doing it really well and doing it very authentically as well. But I can see how the existing brands that haven't done that before are also trying to figure that out because you can't just, I guess, wake up one day and then have loads of black and brown models and plus size models and because it's not going to come across as genuine and authentic. So 
I feel like they also need to do the work internally. They want to take like every box like 10 times. <laughs> yeah, like they need to figure out a way to like do it in a way that's authentic and not just trying to tick box. I think brands are trying to be more diverse and inclusive definitely in terms of their marketing anyway but I think there's also work that needs to be done internally in terms of actually hiring black staff black and brown staff and inclusive staff there was a time period where there was like companies showing the people that work for them like as in like one picture and like everyone would just be white <laughs> and it's like okay where where's the diversity hun <laughs> Like, yes, you can do it in the marketing, but also we need to see that within the company and within the perspectives of the brand. Uh, is there a diverse company that you're running or you're just doing it for sure? Yeah, absolutely. Who are the decision makers, you know? Yes, that part. That really matters, you know, ultimately. No matter how diverse, you know, multicoloured <laughs> the workforce is, who's at the top who's making that final decision? Absolutely. And, you know, what you've said there about I'm really, really liking this, actually. I guess there has to be a genuine effort to make people feel more included, to make things more diverse. Leading on from that, then, I also think about, well, how diverse is the effort from certain leaders? Or I guess, how diverse is the pool of leaders who are leading the effort towards sustainability itself? And so the question that comes to mind is, do you notice a difference in how certain ethnicities engage with the sustainability initiative. Because I often think about, I guess it's sort of a, a trope with regards to those who come from immigrant families or maybe our first generation here and their parents were born elsewhere. I guess the mentality that we're kind of used to is, look, as long as you've got food on the table and you've done well in school and you've got a job, that's all I kind of really care about. And then we grow up you know, as this first gen here. And we come out with all sorts of, you know, creative endeavours, hidden pages and revival, case in point. And so what I basically think is, do certain ethnic minorities have the time? Have they developed that consciousness, sorry, with regards to what it means to be sustainable? And in consideration of that, the difference in priorities between ethnicities, broadly speaking, and you can say, actually, no, that's not necessarily the case, but do you see a difference, therefore, in how different ethnicities engage with that idea of sustainability? Wow, that's a question. That's a question. <laughs> Let me break this one down. Okay, cool. So I feel like in terms of immigrant families and black and brown families, I think we approach sustainability from a more less wasteful and yeah, resourceful kind of approach. So I think obviously we have the reusing of containers, the reusing of bags, those little kind of things in the household. And then I guess, yeah, I think that's how we approach it more so rather than in like everyday life and prioritising, you know, the environment and climate change and things like that. But then I think on the flip side, it's like we've done so much work and there's been so much struggle to get to where we are that actually there's been a long while of just actually survival mode so yeah like as you said is there actual time to be like wait and let me live my life more sustainably actually I'm just trying to put food on the table and get these children to school and you know like build a good life for them basically so I think there's that kind of perspective and I think from like maybe 
the more Caucasian perspective, let's say, I think there's obviously a higher level of privilege in that community. And with sustainable fashion being more expensive, there is more accessibility in terms of, you know, price point. And therefore they're able to maybe, I don't want to say indulge, but like buy into more sustainable fashion and have the option to do so because of, you know, higher disposable incomes and things like that. So I think that's how I've seen things play out. And I've seen that my customers as well have been more on the the white side, let's say. <laughs> Whereas I guess my black and brown customers just, they like the style and not necessarily buy into the sustainability aspect, but they do enjoy like the style and the aesthetics more so than like wanting to support sustainability and climate change and, you know, environmental impact. I think a lot of it plays into privileges, disposable income and where we are as a people so far, which is, it's kind of a heavy topic, I'm not going to (laughs) lie, but I think that's how my brain has kind of understood it all. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I think these are some of the more, I guess, systemic things that have a massive, massive impact on likelihood of engagement and longevity of engagement as well. You make such a great point about greater disposable income when you're amongst some ethnicities compared to others. And therefore, that, yeah, just impacting how seriously we may engage with the topic. In consideration of that, what advice would you give, generally speaking, to those of different socioeconomic demographies to act more sustainably? But do you think actually there are some things that everyone can do, regardless of their socioeconomic status, to contribute towards uh, addressing, you know, the issue of climate change and other environmental issues as well? Yeah, I think it requires a a huge shift in um, the mindset of the consumer because I guess you can't just shift your mind from like buying 100 fast fashion items to buying two sustainable items. I mean, it's not going to be an overnight thing. And I think one big step is just literally to shop less, like to actually just buy less items, basically. That's like a very easy and simple way to act more sustainably because consumerism, all of that consumption is just feeding into the capitalist society. And (laughs) a lot of fast fashion does involve, you know, exploitation of workers. And if something is extremely cheap and too cheap to be true, then someone else is paying the price for that item. And there are negative consequences to that, that purchase. So I think... Buying less is definitely step number one. And I think also just being more aware of where your stuff comes from, like where do your clothes actually come from and actually doing a bit of more of a deeper dive into researching where this brand manufactures their garments or looking on websites like Good On You. So Good On You have like ratings of different brands and they give you alternatives to fast fashion brands. So it's a really easy way to understand like, what a brand's rating is. So it can be like good, it can be excellent, it can be poor, it can be needs more work. And that just gives you an indication of where that brand's kind of standpoint is in terms of sustainability and how they operate ethically as well. So there's quite a few resources out there to help you get that knowledge and make better decisions in terms of shopping more consciously as well. 
And I think also secondhand is a really easy way to be more sustainable as well because the item is already made, it's already out there. You're not feeding into more demand for newness from raw materials. You're actually just buying what is out there already. So that's a great alternative to shopping more sustainably as well and being more conscious about your purchasing habits. Amazing. That's some really practical advice there, I think, for our listeners. And again, it kind of circles back to that whole being proactive. And in this instance, being proactive with regards to thinking about where your purchases come from and what impact they may have as well. Just to round off then, if there was any advice that you give to the Black community with regards to how to maintain resilience and consistency when going for their entrepreneurial or even professional endeavours, what would that be? Because I find that that's probably the core of a lot of people's success, including your own. You've been brainstorming this idea for so long since our uni days and now it's coming to fruition and it's picking up and it's getting traction and I think a large part of that is to do with the consistency how do black creatives black professionals black entrepreneurs to be how do they achieve consistency do you even in terms of like social media marketing like having a strict number of days you want to post and being able to bulk edit and schedule that post those posts for the week like that's a way in which you can continuously show up and be consistent online. And in terms of like, I guess, general business, I think you just have to have this unwavering belief in yourself that this is going to work out. Like I'm going to put in 110% effort. I'm going to do what needs to be done. I'm going to research and know, know exactly what I need to do and contact the right people, network like there's no tomorrow do everything in your power to make your brand famous, to make your brand popular, to to put your business out there basically and make it work. And yeah, I think resourcefulness is something that's really gotten me far in terms of building this business because yeah, as a black founder, there's low financial capital, but there's ways in which that I've been able to raise funding and get grants and basically pour into my brand without having that money up front myself. So I think doing a lot of research has really helped me and being really resourceful and finding different ways to create opportunities for myself, even when they don't exist or I can't access certain opportunities out there. One thing I would say as well is be prepared. I think what I found is a lot of, well, myself included, a lot of Black founders and Black businesses, Black-owned businesses are not prepared for the growth that is possible and orders coming in and your brand actually taking off like actually be prepared for that to happen I think we have a very like chicken and egg kind of situation oh if I invest in this but I haven't got any orders other orders going to come but then if you don't invest in that infrastructure how are you going to fulfill the orders if they do come so I think that's been something that's I've been struggling with as well in my head of like actually I need to invest in my production stop making the items myself and actually get someone to help me have a team who are actually, you know, local makers who can do this while I'm actually working on other things like the vision and the mission and, you know, finding new opportunities and letting go of that and investing, putting money into that so that, yes, when the orders do come, they're not here right now, but when they do come, I will have the infrastructure and the, the things in place to, to fulfill those orders and not have issues actually fulfilling customer orders and things like that. So, yeah, be prepared for what is to come and actually be positive and know that actually this is going to work out and just continuously believe in yourself day in, day out. Well, myself and I'm sure many others are so glad you remembered that. I think those are really powerful words um, to leave us with at, you know, at the end of this podcast. 
cannot thank you enough. Now is my favorite time of the podcast when you get to shout about where can we find Revival? Tell us everything. Yeah, so Revival LDN on all social media platforms. So TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, everything. Revival LDN. And then, yeah, my personal page is Thrift Queen Lola. And that's on all platforms as well. So same username across everything. And I post about secondhand clothing, eco-friendly alternatives, upcycling, mending, all of that good stuff. Jeez, that's the final word I have to say on on that one. (laughs) Lola, it's been an absolute pleasure. We can't thank you enough for the time that you've given us today. It really means a lot. You're doing such great work for society, for literally the world. And you're such an inspiration. So thank you. Thank you. Oh, that's so sweet. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you to everyone who's tuned in as well today. We hope you've gleaned all those golden nuggets of wisdom that Lola has shared today. And yeah, we look forward to you joining us for the next episode. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. If you're enjoying this series of Fortunate Mentors so far, then please do consider subscribing and leaving us a review on ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm. It really does help us spread the word and help make business mentorship even more accessible. That's all again from us today, but please make sure you tune in again next week for more pocket-sized mentorship.